In the Wild West world of podcasting, there is one podcast that is authentic and genuine and continues to stand tall in its originality. Based on a passion for his guests, their work, and his love of podcasting, Derek Thomas and Monday Morning Critic Podcast get amazing, diverse, unique guests found nowhere else. They include Hall of Fame athletes, Academy Award winners, Golden Globe winners, Super Bowl champions, Emmy winners, award-winning authors, award-winning film score composers, directors, trailblazers, pioneers, and venters, the variety and quality are endless. There is something for everyone. Derek Thomas is the hero you deserve. He's a silent guardian, a watchful protector. Welcome to Monday Morning Critic Podcast. Here is Derek Thomas. Okay, if you are... Um... <coughs> My next guest is uh, one of the stars of a very good uh, television show called St. Elsewhere, which is on this network on Wednesday nights at 10 o'clock, and uh, Ed was nominated for an Emmy this year, and deservedly so. Would you welcome Ed Begley, Jr.? Good to see you. Congratulations on your nomination. Thank you very much. Didn't walk off with it, but what's the difference? I can't say. <laughs> no, I'll be I'd fine. <laughs> Tears of joy. No, I'm really very happy for the guy who did win. Yeah. They always say that, don't they? It's just enough to be nominated among your peers. Yeah. I hope the other guy dies before he gets on. <laughs> anyway, that's It nice. was fun. It was an honor to be nominated. It really was. Yeah. Good yeah. for you. Did we talk a little bit about the last time you were here about you used to be, we got into that, a stand-up comic. Yeah, I had one of the worst acts of the 1970s. You mentioned it was yeah. a rather bizarre I act. I played very small clubs out in the boonies. I didn't play a lot of big clubs. Why did you decide to do that? I mean... I don't know. Um, I'm really uh, wondering. It was a, I think it was a big mistake. I mean, did your friends say, hey, Ed, you're really kind of funny. You ought to go out and... Yeah, everybody stand. says that. People want to tell you what you want to hear. You know, hey, you're funny. The guy's funny who's, you know, the tool and die company. Get up there. You should do an act. And I was one of those guys, I think. I played... Clubs in the sticks. I mean, I yeah. got reviewed by Field and Stream much of the time. <laughs> My next guest has over 330 credits in his filmography, including seven Emmy nominations. He's an environmentalist and Bagley Living Products. I can I can recommend them from personal experience. I don't use the word legend often. I will now. Please welcome Ed Bagley Jr. Ed, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Thank you so much for having me on. So, Ed, I have to say, um, I want to talk about your dad because the Academy Awards were last night, and it's very appropriate to talk about how your father won an Academy Award uh, in 1963, and I'll get to the specifics of that in a moment. Um, but your dad grew up in Hartford, Connecticut, which is interesting because it's only 40 minutes from where I am now, and I was kind of, it's always such a small world, Ed, when I do research um, about people, and I just... The, the proximity of, li- of life and living, and I always feel like it, it really is it's a small world, Ed. And I get there regularly to that region because my sister lives in Springfield, just north of Hartford there. So I'm coming to Holyoke and Springfield and the surrounding areas quite often. That's where I live in Springfield, Ed. How do you like that? That's <laughs> even smaller. lived there e- since the early 70s. That's funny. Even smaller, even smaller. So, yeah, so, so you're clearly um, enamored by your father. That's the impression I get from listening to interviews and research. Uh, yeah. he, he clearly meant the world to you, Ed. That's true. He really was a wonderful actor and a wonderful father, and he taught me many great lessons. You know, all the environmental ethic that I carry on to this day, it all started with him. Not that he was an environmentalist per se, but he turned off the lights and turned off the water and saved string and saved tinfoil. You know, he was the son of Irish immigrants. He lived through the Great Depression. So he really had quite an ethic for conserving and uh, valuing the land. 
Yeah, and, and, and we're, we're going to get to the environmental stuff, and, and I want to talk about it because that's part of your philosophy, right? Because, um, you know, many people, can, they say, oh, I can't afford these big solar panels or this electric car. But you know what? Your philosophy's always been, you could start small, start recycling, do compost. It's, you, you, it's the little things like you just said your father was doing. That's right. That's what, what I did back in 1970. I was a broken, struggling actor. And one of the things my dad regularly said to me when he heard me complain in the 50s and 60s about the smog, he'd say, I know what you're against. You're against the smog. But what are you for? Mm. You know? Mm. And, uh, and so what are you doing about it? Are you doing anything to make the air better? So he died in 1970 within a few days of the first Earth Day. So I did a lot of the things that I did back then to honor him. And I can promise you it was all on the cheap because I didn't have a lot of money. And so, uh, you know, I did all this stuff and I quickly not only was found I was doing stuff to save the environment, but I was also saving dough at every turn. And no, there's nothing wrong with that, obviously. No, no, it's well said. You know, and, you know, and I, as I mentioned, in 1963, for those listening, uh, the movie came out in 62. It was the 63 Academy Awards. Uh, your dad wins for Best Supporting Actor, Sweet Bird of Youth. Uh, people don't understand how iconic of, a, of an award show that was that year because that's the same year Gregory Peck wins for To Kill a Mockingbird, Ed. It's a big, yeah. that's a big show. That's a monumental uh, Academy Awards year. Huge. You know? Huge. Uh, and me- Rita Moreno, who I got to work with on Bless This Mess, the wonderful Rita Moreno, she had won for uh, for West Side Story the year before, I believe, and so she got to give my dad the award, which was a great honor for him. Uh, how beautiful is that? And, and how in tune are you? So last night we had the awards, Nomadland wins, a lot of great movies, a lot of great actors um, uh, achieving great success, stardom, and, and so forth. Um, how in tune, I mean, because you're very busy, you have a lot going on as we're going to talk about today. Do you find yourself consistently, are you, is there a day of the week where you just sit down and say, you know what, because you're still a, very much a working actor, how do you make time to sit down and watch a screener or watch a, a movie or a show? I just make the time on the weekends or after work or before work, and I saw a lot of great movies this year. This year. I loved No Man Land, but I really also loved, you know, Ma Rainey, and I loved uh, The Father, wonderful, wonderful movie with Anthony Hopkins. I loved mm. uh, Sound of Metal. Uh, I loved uh, Minari. Uh, got to so many great movies this past year. I just... I, I loved each and every one of them. It was a great, great year for motion pictures, I think. Yeah, it was, certainly. And, and I definitely want to talk about your life, especially the 70s. I really find it very interesting. But l- l- let me ask you this. Um, when, when you're, It's almost overwhelming, I feel like. And your personal experience, Ed, as an actor, right? I get that there's more avenues now with the streaming and so forth. How has acting changed over the years? How has the TV and movie landscape changed in your eyes? You know, I get there's more opportunities, more projects. But how do you view it? Because you're still clearly a very successful working actor to this day. Uh, but how has it changed in your eyes, for the good or the bad? You know, the equipment has changed a lot. That was part of it. It used to be you had to go through the studio system because you couldn't ever get your hands on the big, large equipment, something called a Mitchell BNC camera. That's what they shot nearly every movie and TV show on, a Mitchell BNC. Mm. Before that, it was a, a Technicolor camera, which was even bigger this huge thing to record a movie in color because they didn't have color film back, you know, when they did a lot of these movies. So they, they filmed it with a camera that pulled three strips of film through the camera simultaneously with the filters for blue, green, and red. And it printed it like a magazine back in the day. So equipment was huge, got a little smaller and smaller 
And with that, it became more accessible for people like John Cassavetes to do movies. And, you know, independent people, independent movies were being done more and more. The French films were doing it with those eclair NPR kind of cameras. The light lighting got to be, you know, more realistic lighting and less lights because the film stock, you know, just technologically, you needed 400 foot candles, which is a lot of light to get what they call an F4, you know, an aperture opening of F4, mm. which is good for focus on the lens. Uh, to get that, you had to have a tremendous amount of light and people were sweating and you had lots of problems. So equipment got smaller, sound recording equipment got smaller, everything got smaller. More people were able to do movies like Easy Rider and your know, last picture show and these movies that started to change things. And I began to work with those people. I worked with Bob Rapelson, who did five easy pieces, you know, and I worked with, you know, uh, gosh, I, I worked with Jack Nicholson. I had the pleasure of working with on Going South, worked with Jeff Bridges on, uh, you know, uh, that Bob Rapelson movie, Stay Hungry. I got to work with a lot of the Paul Schrader, who wrote Taxi Driver. You know, he also wrote and directed Blue Collar with Richard Pryor, Harvey Keitel and Yafit Koto. So I, I was very lucky to work with some of these people and saw the industry change and a lot of it for the better. Yeah, and Stay Hungry was Arnold's first movie too, right, Ed? That's correct. He was a bodybuilder at the time. He had only done one movie before where he actually uh, got his his dialogue uh, revoiced. They didn't like his accent when they cut the film together. It was called Hercules in New York. <laughs> and so they revoiced his character with another actor that didn't have a, an Austrian accent. But uh, that was Arnold's first movie. It was clearly back then, I could tell, a very clever guy. He owned the apartment building he was in, and I was late with my rent and what have you, and all, had all kinds of problems. And I thought, wait a minute. When I first met this guy, I thought he's like some dumb bodybuilder. He's certainly smarter, smarter than me. He's not late with his rent. He owns his own building that he <laughs> lives in and what have you. So we became friends back then in 1975, and, I, and, uh, and Bob Rapelson and I became friends, and Jeff Bridges, and Lots of other good people who worked on that fine film. Yeah, yeah, and you know, your dad passes in seventy, right? So your your first one of your first opportunities, I believe it's the first, comes with my the the very iconic My Three Sons. Is your dad really proud of you at that point, Ed? Is when he sees his own son? I mean, I'm sure you thought it was more success than actually it was. I mean, I, I look at it, I think it's phenomenal. But what was your dad's view of? I've heard you talk about this, but what what was your dad? He must have been so proud of you. I think he was, but he tried to keep a lid on it, if you will, because he had had a bad experience with my much older brother, Tom, who had uh, worked with him in vaudeville. And at some point, Tom said to him, I didn't really want to be doing that work in vaudeville. I didn't want to be an actor as a young man. You made me do it. And I wanted to be out playing ball with my friends, with the guys. And so my dad went, well, I won't do that again. So he certainly didn't push my sister and I, I have a sister who's 11 months older, and we both wanted to be actors. And so my dad said, I'm not doing that again. If you guys want to do it, go do it on your own, but I'm not going to help you and have you resent it later. Good luck with it. But the truth is, I got to be honest with you, even though he didn't overtly help me, I know just being his son helped. I mean, why else would I have gotten an agent to get that part of my three sons? Mm. You know, I got that because not only was I Ed Begley's son, but he knew Freddie de Cordova, who directed that episode of my three sons. I don't know to this day, maybe even called up Fred, Fred de Cordova and said, how did he do it? And, it, you know, Fred, <laughs> said, he was OK, said it'd be great if you gave him the part. I don't know if that happened, but it might have, you know, so. Right. He was I think he was happy. He certainly seemed to be happy when I was doing it. And he I think he pretended to have no 
role in it, but I think he might have had a secret role there. I, I, that's something I've, I've thought about in recent years. I think it might be so. Mm-hmm. You know, and one of the things I, I really came to realize, Ed, from, from researching your life is how successful of a comedian you were, um, especially with uh, Michael Richards. Um, that was bo- the 70s, I feel like, were, were a blessing for you, but also some, some scary times at moments. Um, talk about Michael Richards and your stand-up career a little bit, if you don't mind. There was a big problem working with Michael Richards. I had gone to college with Michael Richards at Valley College, the San Fernando Valley. He was in the theater arts department. It was no question to everybody in the theater arts department in the 60s, late 60s in, in L.A. He was the funniest guy any of us had ever met. So my challenge was not cracking up while on stage. You know, <laughs> I was purported to be his partner, and occasionally I was a good partner. But a lot of times he would do something so brilliant and outrageous you know, that I, I couldn't contain myself. So that's why the, the, the duo didn't have legs. It wasn't for want, uh, desire on my part to do it. And he wanted to do it, but I just, I couldn't keep a straight face around him. He was so, uh, he's such a brilliant physical comic, as we've seen with Kramer and many other, Marblehead Manor, a million different jobs that he's had over the years. He's a great physical comedian, and he really cultivated that and trained and watched old, you know, videotapes or old 60 millimeter films of Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton and Paul Parrott and these great physical comedians and adopted a lot of great physical comedy skills. He's an amazing performer. Yeah, well said. Were you signed by Don McLean's uh, agent or manager? I thought I, heard, I read that. Absolutely correct. Wow. I was at the Troubadour one night in 1973, I believe it was. And Don McLean happened to be there. And I just did a, a quick set. And so Don McLean called up his manager and said, I don't know if you want to represent comedians. You do only singers, I know, and bands. But there's this comic I saw at the Troubadour, and he's very funny, and you should represent him. So he came, this fellow Herb Gard, who was my manager for years, he came to see me. I did a guest spot, I guess, that next time at the Comedy Store. And Michael Richards and I had played there the week that it opened. So... They were inclined to let me go on stage, and he signed me, and I wound up opening for Don McLean and opening for um, lots of other acts, uh, Logan de Messina, Poco, John Sebastian, Cam Heat, um, James, uh, who else did I? Oh. Was it Neil Sadaka, too? Neil Sadaka, very good. I was trying to think of names. Yeah. Dave Mason, I opened for Dave Mason, and uh, I opened at the Ice House for a lot of different acts, too. I was very lucky to do a lot of that work. And uh, then Michael came back from the military. He had been in the Army. He got Mm. drafted. And so then we worked together as a duo for a while again. And and he went off in his own and did great work. And he certainly didn't need me as as a partner. He started to do incredible work and got a, a big manager and a big agent, did very well. Yeah, and there's a couple of names I want to throw at you, and I thought this story was unbelievable. So one of your good friends is Cindy Williams, um, and um, I, I felt like there was a time in your life, and if I'm wrong in this, I apologize, uh, but I, th- I think I have this down, where you were struggling, I, I want to say maybe with substances or alcohol, it was a rough patch in, in the 70s, and did she drive you to the hospital, Ed? I don't want to say save your life, but did she drive No, you- no, she did. Let's call it what it is. She drove me to the hospital. I believe she saved my life. I don't know what would have happened if we'd even waited for an ambulance. I had uh, gone out again to try to see if I could just drink moderately, and I could not. 
a few, like two weeks at this point, rather than take six months or three months or two months. Now it was down to two weeks before, you know, from me saying to my wife, oh, honey, I'll just have a little wine with dinner to, you know, full-blown DTs and shaking and in bad shape. So that two-week bender got me so sick because I took, I was, I was so hungover and had the DTs that a doctor, my normal doctor wasn't around. Another doctor prescribed Thorazine, which doesn't mix very well with alcohol. Not that other sedatives do, mm. you know, like Valium, none of it mixes mm. well with alcohol. But this had a, I had a very bad reaction from it. And I, my heart was, and uh, my heart was stopping and my pulse was very low. Uh, my wife woke me up with my, she said, your color is really bad. Your breathing's bad. We got to do something. Walk around, drink some coffee. And then Cindy Williams came by. She called up Cindy and she put me in the car and took me to Cedars and I made it. I don't know that I would have made it without Cindy. She saved my life. Wow. Wow. And I was running today and I was listening to a story you were telling. Um, and I have to say, I almost, I had to stop because I couldn't believe what I was hearing. Uh, I believe it's true. I just, it was just such a phenomenal story. Um, it was with Harry Nelson and dinner at the Dakota. If you don't mind telling that, Ed, I, I thought it was maybe one of my favorite stories I've ever heard. You're very kind, but uh, talk about a kind man and a good man and a talented man. Mm. Harry Nelson was a dear friend and such a huge, huge talent. And at some point, uh, he decided that uh, I was somebody worth hanging out with. And we would hang out in L.A. a lot and we'd go out to bars. It's just what we, we did back in the 70s. And this is 1975 at this point, I believe. And we uh, were in New York and we we're going pub crawling, what have you. And he said, you know what, I'm going to have dinner with some friends be out in front of the hotel at six o'clock and we'll go over and have dinner with some friends of mine. I said, okay. So I meet Harry Nilsson and his wife, Una, and we go in a taxi cab and he, the taxi cab pulls up to the Dakota. And I'm thinking, no, it can't. <laughs> when he says friends, he doesn't mean no. Cause I knew very well as everybody did of Harry's friendship with John Lennon and Yoko, but I just, he can't, he would have prepared me for this. We go up in the elevator, open the door to an apartment, and there's John Lennon and Yoko Ono. And it's like, I'm just trying to keep my face from cracking, okay? I feel like my face is going to shatter and fall in pieces on the ground. And John Lennon opens the door, and Yoko, look, it's a bloke from Medi Hoffman, Medi Hoffman. Look, what about Louise Lassa? What's she like? My God, he's like a fan of Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. And he's yeah. asking me all these questions. Like, I'm the star, and I, I, I just... I had a hard time composing myself, but I had one of the magical nights one has in this lifetime, having dinner, macrobiotic food that Yoko cooked with a baby in the other room uh, at, at that point, a very young child in the other room. And we just sat there and, you know, had macrobiotic food and, and had dinner with John Lennon and Yoko Ono. It was a, a magical night, another great gift for my friend Harry Nilsson. Ah, beautiful story. Beautiful man, too. Uh, you know, uh, there's two other names I've been dying to throw by you. One of which, for those of you listening, is the, is William Daniels, the iconic Knight Rider voice saying elsewhere, the graduate. I feel like he was a big influence in your life, too, Ed. Huge influence. It's so interesting that you bring up Bill Daniels. I went to his house just yesterday and visited Bonnie Bartlett and Bill Daniels <laughs> and their son, Michael. I just... I had a lovely day with, with Bill just yesterday. I love seeing him, and I went by there yesterday. And let me tell you something. Long before I set foot on the stage for St. Elsewhere and got to work with him on that wonderful series, I was smitten with him. I'd seen him in Two for the Road. I'd seen him in Parallax View. 
I'd seen him in lots of movies and he was a huge, huge talent. And the idea of working with him in a series and working with Ed Flanders, I was just over the moon, but it was Bill that really put in the time and was a mentor to me and a great advisor to me. And when I'd come in late, you know, uh, so, not that I was late often, but close to the wire late, uh, I would, uh, you know, be clearly learning my lines in the makeup chair before we're about to do the scene. Said, Ed, I have another idea for you. I might be good for ne next week's work. So what's that, Bill? Why don't you learn the lines before you come in on stage? That might be a good idea. <laughs> and of course, he was right. You know, I went, yeah, what, what, what am I so busy with? Why don't I learn them a little earlier than last minute? Don't put that off. That's something that could maybe help me do better work to have them a little better. But my blessing was my curse. My blessing was that I could learn lines, you know, like that. I could learn lines in a snap. So I went, I, I, I'll learn them later. I, I can learn them quickly. But it's much better to be fully, fully prepared. Bill taught me that many other great lessons. So I love seeing him and getting to thank him for the way he's influenced my life in a very positive manner. Oh, that's very sweet. And, and the other person I wanted to ask you about was Norman Lloyd. I feel like he was a part, a big part of your life as well. Huge part of my life. And this is a man who's 106 now or something like it, 105 or 106. 107, I think. He's getting to – unbelievable. I think it might be. Yeah. I think you're right. I think it's 107. He was playing tennis regularly till the age of like 99 or 100. Wow. And he's just – I mean, his stories are just unbelievable. So there I am. I'm – I'm saboteur. I'm in Hitchcock's movie Saboteur. I mean, he has these stories about Hitchcock and about Orson Welles and the Mercury Playhouse and what have you. Just an incredible bit of film history there. A guy that's been around for so long. I just value him so much as a friend and as a fellow artist. And I'm so glad I'm still very close to Norman Lloyd. Yeah, Dead Poet Society, for those listening. you, you I mean, two wonderful friends and, and, and mentors, for sure. Uh, before we get into a little bit of your filmography and then get into these great things that you've been doing, um, I just watched an, a wonderful... I know you were on Mike Douglas. There was a wonderful clip of you on Johnny Carson, and there was a little bit of Trivial Pursuit going on. I know Johnny didn't like everybody, but he seemed to like you an awful lot, Ed. He was so nice to me, Johnny was, and he loved games like i did and so we would play trivial pursuit on the show sometimes he would pull out the card and ask me some questions and it wasn't the setup i hadn't i didn't know what questions he was going to ask i certainly hadn't been prompted so it was always fun and kind of unexpected and uh, i i really liked him he was an icon to so many comics and so many actors and to sit there in that chair and be on the tonight show with Don, johnny carson it was just you know breathtaking and uh something I feel very grateful for. Yeah, and, and, you know, I have to say, talking about, you know, St. Elsewhere, which is where we're kind of leading up to, um, you know, the one thing I feel like today's TV doesn't have is the, some of, I mean, I'm probably being too generalist about this, but the iconic nature of, I mean, there was a time where I was watching, you know, um, St. Elsewhere and, and Hill Street Blues, and not only were, was the show fantastic, the themes leading up to those shows were iconic as well. Um, and I have to say, without St. Elsewhere, Ed, there's no Grey's Anatomy today. There's no ER. N name a, a show around any medical story. It doesn't exist without St. Elsewhere. That might be so, I'll tell you. Uh, now, these are, I want to be crystal clear, ER is a wonderful medical show. We did a great job, but I really think these shows are excellent. Grey's Anatomy, same thing. They're Absolutely. Just amazing shows, but... 
perhaps we, you know, helped raise the bar a bit the way we did to make more real medical dramas the way I believe we did in the 80s, and they took it further still. But um, before that, it wasn't always that realistic the way they dealt with medical matters on shows that I saw as a young man growing up, shows like Ben Casey and Dr. Kildare. They were, you know, Owen Marshall. Oh, no, not Owen Marshall. It was another medical show, Medical Center. It wasn't as real as St. Elsewhere. St. Elsewhere had a, a level of reality that I hadn't seen in any medical show prior to that. So I was just over the moon, happy and elated to be on that show and work with Denzel Washington and David Morris and Bonnie Bartlett and Christina Pickles. I just felt Bill Daniels, my God, so lucky, lucky. Mm-hmm. And Gray's, as you said, Gray's and ER, absolutely fantastic shows. Um, you know, and you're still doing some wonderful things. I love Future Man. Better Call Saul was is so great. Uh, a surprising role in Pineapple Express, a mighty win, best in show. I mean, on and on. But I love a lot of the early work you did too as well, Ed. And I, sometimes I feel like that gets overlooked, right? So we could be talking about Laverne and Shirley or Quincy. Um, one of your favorites, I know this. So with, with a filmography as lengthy as yours, 330 credits, I mean, maybe more. Um, is it tough? Because I know, and, and I was so surprised, I, I totally forgot you were in this. Um, can you name two or three of your, your, your favorites or roles that stick out? I know you love Spinal Tap. I know that's one of yours that you really enjoy. Is, is it impossible with that many credits to name two or three that stand out to you? It is hard because there's been so many wonderful experiences and wonderful results. You know, a movie like Spinal Tap is very dear to a lot of people, and I'm one of them. Uh, the In-Laws is a great movie with Peter Falk and Alan Arkin, and I had the pleasure of being in that. Um, a Mighty Wind mm. was a dream to work with Chris on that, and certainly Best in Show was uh, just so wonderful and, and generous of Chris Guest to put me in that movie because he had done Waiting for Guffman, and I was not in that movie, but he included me in the next one, which was Best in Show, and I've been in every one of his projects since, so... My friendship with Chris is just one of the great joys of my life. And I I got to see my dear friend Jack Nicholson the other day on his birthday and spend time with him. And he was kind enough to put me in Going South in 1977. And Bruce Paltrow gave me a, the break of a lifetime to put me in St. Elsewhere. So mm. good and talented people, actors and producers and writers have been so good to me. Paul Schrader had put me in four or five of his movies, for God's sake that he was directing and had written. So I'm very lucky that a lot of people have given me these opportunities. That's how I get to be in this business today. Yeah, and I, f- I feel like it's it's obviously your talent, but I also feel like you are highly respected by your peers, which is which is what an actor I, I would I would like to believe is going for. Because, I mean, um, I think you're a very sincere person, a very kind person. I think others see that, and I think that has helped you in your career. I think people look at you as this wonderfully talented actor who just knows how to work and, and do his job. I think you're I think you're highly regarded by your peers, Ed. That's very nice of you to say, but I'll tell you something right now. I realized early on, not that I don't have talents, I have some skills and I, I'm uh, okay as an actor, but I always show up on time. I try to make everybody's job easier. You know, I know my lines and I, you know, try to help every department. And so that kind of cooperative, cooperative nature has really kept me working now 54 years in this business. And, mm. uh, and th- that counts for something because the same way actors talk and go, I didn't like that director. He was mean or he was such and such. Directors and 
studio heads talk to and they go, I don't, I didn't like working with that actor. He was late a lot and he didn't know his lines and he caused a lot of problems for the other departments. So if you can get along with other people and still do your job creatively in every way, of course, you, you've got to do the best quality uh, of, of work. That's number one. But in so doing, if you can also make everybody else's job easier, that counts for a lot and you'll have a good career that will last a long time. Yeah, and speaking of careers, your your environmental work has you you've been. I mean, you were one of the first on the scene, 1970. Um, what I'm dying to hear about Ed is, I think you might have even had one of the first electric cars as well. I mean, it was more like a like you've described it as a golf cart, but still, I mean, that's you are practicing what you're preaching for a long time, Ed. Yeah, I, in 1970, I got involved with the first Earth Day, and I decided I'd do everything that I could afford you know, to be an environmentalist. You know, I started recycling, I started composting, I became a vegetarian. And I thought, electric car, I'd like to get an electric car, but where the hell would I get that? And so it was kind of my dad's voice that said to me, well, just look in the phone book, you know, you'll pro- who knows what you'll find. I thought, that's the stupidest idea I've ever heard. There's nobody in the San Fernando Valley that's going to be selling electric cars in 1970. And I looked up, sure enough, somebody had electric car, you know, sales, listed in the phone book. And I went over there. His name was Dutch and he sold me electric car. I can tell you, I was the only person under 60 that had ever bought an electric car from him. <laughs> Everybody else was buying them for, you know, retirement community in Palm Springs or what have you. And these are really golf carts, you know, with a tiller instead of a steering wheel, but they had a California plate, you know, for just tooling around a little retirement community. But I rode it around the San Fernando Valley. You can't go on the freeway with it, obviously, or even on a, a street that's too busy or fast. But I stayed in the slow lane and stayed to the right and got around. And on a smoggy day or a rainy day, it was much better than you know being out there in the smog or in the rain on my bicycle. So I And I even took Cindy Williams on a date in my electric car, but it was not exactly a babe magnet. I didn't get a second date out of her. The car hadn't been fully charged or something. We were crawling by the time we got up to the restaurant. I think there was a kid on Hot Wheels passing us by. So it wasn't much of a car. But I got around with it, and it was only $950. And I thought, this is pretty good. I can cut down on my you know, pollution and you know, do the right thing and, and save some money. And so eventually I got a faster, better electric car, and I've stuck with them to this day. Yeah, and I got to say, Cindy Williams sounds like one of the most fantastic people on the the planet. What a wonderful soul she sounds like. Um, The other thing I wanted to ask you, Ed, I I was talking about a month ago with um, uh, Bob Wells, who plays a part in Nomadland, and he's he's, he's very much environmental friendly. He lives the van life. Um, I I kind of asked him this question. I'll ask you, are we moving in the right direction as as people over the years? I mean, you've been in in the front lines for a long time here. Um, are we going in the right du- direction? Are we doing the right things? Because, uh, you know, I, I, I'm just awfully worried that, you know, I, I want it to make a difference. I want the solar energy. I want all this other things. We, you know, people talk about these other things that, that they've been incorporating over the years. I want it to make a difference. I want it to, you know, saving this precious planet that we have. Are we, are we going in the right direction, Ed? In some ways we are. In other ways, we've really got to pick up the pace. We have to do more and get headed in the right direction. But now... Recently, things have gotten better. There's more uh, belief in Washington and climate change and the fact that it's real. And let me be clear, insurance companies have known for a long time that it's real because they've been paying the claims. 
the Pentagon knows it's real because they, you know, assess such things in a very nuts and bolts manner. Lots of people know it's it's real and has to be dealt with. So that's being taken seriously. And we've also, this is the most important thing I'm going to say in this phone call. We've proven that we can do it, that we can clean up the air and do things of that magnitude. Why do I say that? Because we already have. From 1970 to date, I started with the first Earth Day in 1970. From 1970 to now, we have four times the cars in L.A., millions more people, but a fraction of the smog. We did that. We proved that we could do it. Cleaner power plants, cleaner cars, catalytic converters, spray paint booths, all the stuff that we did big and small made for cleaner air. Now we need to do that, you know, statewide in California. We have to a large extent. We need to do it nationwide. We need to do it globally. But you can do it. And we didn't go broke doing it because guess what? There's money to be made in putting catalytic converters in cars. There's Mm. money to be made in cleaner power, in solar and wind and cleaner everything. You know, these are jobs too, jobs of dignity and and, uh, jobs that make a difference in every way. So uh, we can do it. We've proven that we can. We just got to set about doing it. And now's the time to do it, to, you know, reemploy a lot of people who've been laid off because of the pandemic, put people back to work, making homes and offices more energy efficient, and then making a lot of solar panels to put on the roofs and wind turbines to put where they are appropriate to put them. Yeah, beautifully said. You know what's something that really bothers me, Ed, is the fact that I look at the Netherlands and how they've embraced bicyclists and, and the lack of cars. As, as somebody who's an avid bicyclist myself, I own two or three bikes, depending on which month you catch me in. Um, I, I just feel like why – I feel like in, in, in my area of, of the world, Western Mass, that Western Massachusetts, that we don't embrace like cycling. So for the very first time, 2020, they put in the first bike lane. I feel like that's kind of pathetic that I'm saying that right now. I mean, 2020 is the first, you know, legitimate bike lane in, in traffic, you know, before people were kind of dodging and stopping and it was kind of a mess. I mean, why are we so late to the game? I mean, I mean, it's just, it's very bothersome to me, Ed. It's hard to shake. The car culture has really taken such a hold of us all that it's hard to shake. But once you do, you know, when you see some of these lanes, you know, to foot traffic or to bike lanes, it always works out very well. Mm. You know, people are scared of it. Merchants are scared of it. Years ago, years, I'm talking about decades ago, a lot of merchants fought them in the city of Santa Monica when they're going to close down Third Street, where there was cars driving back and forth and cars parking in front of businesses and meters and what have you. They said, we're going to close down Third Street and make it foot traffic only. No, we're going to go broke. It's going to be horrible. Anybody who is lucky enough to have property on Third Street when there used to be cars, and now that there has been for 30 years, you know, just foot traffic, it's some of the prime real estate in the world. Mm. Retail real estate is some of the prime real estate anywhere because, you know, it's a people come from all around the world and all around L.A. to go walk in Third Street Promenade and buy things and go into the little yogurt shops and the restaurants and everything. You know, so it it can be very good. It's certainly good to have people on their bikes staying fit, you know, getting from point A to point B. And it's very inexpensive to do if you can if you have the room and there's still room for the cars to move freely, you know, where they're going and you can put a bike lane in. It's just it's it's a great way to go. I've been riding bikes for years. We've had bike lanes in L.A. for many, many years, and now they're putting many more in. And it's. It's been a success every place that we've we put them, and it just really 
a brush in a can of paint in many cases that you need to make this huge improvement in uh, traffic and in pollution. So it's something we need to do. Yeah, well said. And I wanted to, to close the interview talking about uh, Bagley Living. It certainly um, affected my life. We have three dogs, two Australian Shepherds, one Yorkie. The, we found that the, one of the dogs just loathes taking a bath. So we have the waterless pet shampoo. Works like a charm. We love it. I wish you, I wish people would make something, Ed, that dealt with, I mean, it's not a problem, I guess, on, on the West Coast, but ticks are such a big problem. Um, you, and, and by the way, the, the products available are more than just the, the waterless pet shampoo that we have, uh, also available on Amazon and through Ed's website, which I'll give you in a moment. But Ed, just talk about that because uh, we love the waterless pet shampoo. It does work like a charm for our one dog that just does not enjoy bathing. They're so nice to bring that up. They're wonderful products. I discovered them through my friend Mark Cunningham. I had a business, a business before called Begley's Best. Very good products those were as well. I had a friend had a wonderful formula and what have you. But I was bottling it myself, you know, with a, a bottling company, but kind of buying the bottles and the sprayers and paying for the liquid and doing all that and then shipping it myself out of my garage. And I just really didn't have the time because I'm still a working actor. So I met this guy great guy, Mark Cunningham, and he had products every bit as clean and green as mine. So I became the spokesperson for it. And I, he said, I'll handle all the shipping and all the other stuff that you were doing. And, uh, and these products are really great. We got an all-purpose cleaner. We got a glass cleaner. We got all sorts of kitchen products, you know, the, the pet stain and odor remover. So uh, floor cleaners, really great products. Just go to edbegley.com or begleyliving.com. If you're on Amazon, you just type in Begley, B-E-G-L-E-Y, Begley's Cleaners, and just the word Begley will do it, and you'll find our products, and they're really good products, and it's very sweet of you to mention it. I'm, I'm grateful, my friend. Yeah, the last thing I will say is you are available on Cameo as well. Ed, how can people follow you on social media? How can they, um, you know, I, you mentioned the product, the website. How else can they, you know, follow you and in, 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 um, see what's going on with, with your professional career, the products, anything like that? Uh, follow the the Begley with a little blue mark, which is me. It's at Ed Begley Jr. That's for Twitter. It's at Ed Begley Jr. for Junior, and th that's how the best way to follow me. I do Instagram too, but I don't do that as religiously as I do Twitter. I'm on Twitter every day, responding to people and keeping up with that stuff. But I'm I'm going to make a vow now to get better with Instagram. That's Ed underscore Begley underscore. Uh, jr i said that wrong ed underscore begley underscore jr for junior that's what it is and uh that's instagram or ed begley jr for junior uh on twitter and that's me just go to edbegley.com and you'll find all those little uh handles listed there ed you are a phenomenal actor but i have to say after this interview you're a f even better human being thank you so much for sharing some of your life with me today and um i wish you nothing but the best moving forward likewise pal i'll see you in springfield Thank you.